We're talking about fasting today in our message. I entitled my message, Fasting, a, a Biblical Overview. Maybe you've never fasted in your life. Maybe when the word fasting comes up, negative thoughts come to your mind. And maybe that's understandable, not surprising, because fasting means abstaining. And we don't like to abstain from things that we enjoy. But maybe it's because you've never heard a message or even read an article on the blessings of fasting. And I'm not trying to spin it, okay? I'm not trying to spin it, but the blessings of fasting. That's what we're going to talk about here today. And I'm not talking about the physical benefits. Let me just mention those in passing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the physical benefits. I'm talking about the spiritual benefits of fasting. There are physical benefits. You can go online and read hundreds, thousands of pages about the physical benefits. We are well aware of them. Now the medical establishment is talking about them. First of all, it detoxifies your body. It's a cleanse. It does literally detoxify your body, like getting in a sauna or other examples of detoxification, but it is a detoxification of your body. Second, it's weight loss. You don't have to worry about keto or Mediterranean or any of the other multiple diets and what days do I eat what and all of that. It's just you don't have any calories coming in. It is a weight loss, and now the medical establishment says it's probably the most effective means of weight loss. You don't take any calories in, and it's healthy for your body. Third, now is recognized as something that probably prevents disease, and in some cases can even cure or help with disease. Because your body is always processing food, and it's always going through you. So when you're processing food, your blood supplies and your stomach and your intestines and colon and all of that, and it never really has a rest. When you're fasting, your body goes into repair mode renovation mode, and it begins to repair things that need to be done in your body. I grew up in Michigan, lived in Detroit while I was in school for a period of time. In Detroit, of course, is the auto manufacturing. Every year, they shut down the plant, and they retool, and they repair the auto line. That's kind of like our body. If you're always bringing food in, your body doesn't have an opportunity to repair itself, and your body attacks now we understand adipose tissue. It goes after all kinds of things that are negative in our body, even cancer cells. There are physical benefits, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the spiritual benefits of fasting. Do you realize that fasting is a major part of every world religion? That's not why we would do it. We're not trying to compare ourselves with other world religions, but every culture and every religion has fasting as a part of it. And Christians have historically recognized that there are probably what we call the five disciplines, the five disciplines of the Christian life. We read our Bible, we pray to God, we worship with others, we witness to the lost, and we fast. Those were historically, if you look down through history, those five things were called the five disciplines that Christians practiced. Reading their Bible, praying, worshiping, witnessing, and fasting. And we probably would say, yeah, I'm cool with all of those except for that last one. That's how our culture has changed over 
time. Fasting isn't just a practice for monks or ascetics. It isn't just a practice for those groups. Yes, fasting is markedly counterculture in the world that we live in because we live in a world that is a consumeristic society, narcissistic, self-absorbed, all about comfort, all about enjoyment, all about pleasure. And fasting flies in the face of all of those things. Yes, fasting is different than what our culture would preach to us. In in our society, food is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You go to work, lots of times there's food at work. There's food all over the house, snacks all over the house. Kids go to school, there's food there. Matter of fact, a large percentage of our children's, you know, that go to school get breakfast and lunch at school. Our taxes pay for it. And in the summertime, it's provided for them as well. Food is everywhere. It is literally ubiquitous. But Christian fasting is more than simply simply abstaining. That's not what Christian fasting is, not just simply abstaining. Actually, the goal of Christian fasting is not going without, it is getting more. That's my selling point here this morning. It's not going without. Yes, it is. It's not going without. It is getting more of God and what we need in our Christian life. Christian fasting is done for specific Christian purposes. A definition of fasting, a simple one first. It is going without food or drink or some other good gift of God. All good things come down from the Father of light, James tells us. It is going without food or drink or some other good gift from God for a set period of time. Okay? We're not ascetics. We don't say we deny ourselves all pleasure. No, we don't. God created a beautiful world and wonderful things in it, and we enjoy them as Christians. Here's a fuller definition from Pastor John Piper. He says, fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food or drink, in order to intensify our expression of need. To intensify our expression of need for something greater. Food and drink are good, but God, I need something greater. I need something more important. Namely, God and his working in my life or in the lives of others. Good definition. Fasting, well, let me say, is not explicitly commanded in the Bible. It's not the 11th commandment. You don't read anywhere in the New Testament, thou shalt fast twice a week. Matter of fact, the Pharisee, remember, was in the temple and he was praying. And remember, the tax collector was over there. And the Pharisee was reciting all these good things, what God should bless him. And he says, Lord, I fast twice a week and tithe of everything that I acquire. By the way, you want to impress God, don't fast twice a week, tithe twice a week. But he's saying, I fast twice a week and I give of everything that on my increase. Fasting is not explicitly demanded in the Scriptures. It's implied, though. It is certainly there. Fasting doesn't have the same place in Christianity, for example, that fasting has in the faith of Islam. 
Muslim have a month, what they call Ramadan. You're familiar with it. You see it on the calendars now. During Ramadan, all Muslims fast from the time they get up until the sun goes down. They can eat in the evening. You can't say, well, I'm a Muslim, but I don't do Ramadan. You're not a true Muslim. Because Ramadan is central to their faith. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you've got to fast for a month or you've got to fast twice a week or once a week or once a month. There's nothing explicitly commanded in the Bible that you have to fast. So well, let's understand that. But that doesn't mean it wasn't expected to be practiced by Christians. Listen to this passage of Scripture. You'll see it on the screen. Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus said this, Moreover, when you fast, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites that he dealt with, and I mentioned just a moment ago, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces. They make sure everybody can see that they're not happy. They disfigure their faces that they may appear to fast before men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward, the recognition of men. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in the secret place will reward you openly. So there is a, a promise of benefit. There is a promise of blessing in that one verse. I want you to notice a couple of things from that. Jesus says, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you fast. He didn't just leave it up to your own preferences. Well, I get a headache if I miss a meal. I'm not picking, okay? When you fast, he doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. The second thing he tells us here, Jesus goes on to tell us, don't do it to impress other people like the Pharisees did. Their hair was messed up, their clothes were disheveled, they wore a sad face. He says, don't do it to impress other people. Matter of fact, do your best to not let people know that you're fasting. That's what he tells us. And then I will reward you openly. Another verse, Matthew 9, 15 says this. Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Then you will fast. Who is the bridegroom? Jesus Christ. We're the bride. The church is called the bride. He's called the bridegroom. Matter of fact, this was precipitated because the Pharisees came up and said, hey, we fast every week. Sometimes twice a week. How come your disciples, how come your followers don't fast? Jesus is answering them and he says, while the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast. You don't go to a wedding and say, I'm not eating, I'm fasting today. That's a bad time to pick a fast. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom, I'm gathering my bride, we're ministering, rejoicing, celebrating together. But when the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. Guess what? The bridegroom is gone, he's in heaven. It's implied that we will fast until he returns. When we go to the millennial kingdom, when we get into heaven, we aren't going to be fasting. We're going to be celebrating. We're going to be buffeting our bodies. A little turn on Paul's words, buffet my body. We're going to be buffeting our bodies. Okay? He's saying, when I'm gone, then they will fast. The disciples didn't fast while they were there. And you know what? When we're fasting, we're, we're saying, I'm longing for the bridegroom to return. I'm longing for Jesus to come back. 
I want to be with him once more and, and celebrate with him again. The definition of fasting. Second, the motivation of fasting. What is some motivation for fasting? I'm trying to motivate you to consider fasting. So what does the Bible say about it? Let me give you some examples from the scriptures and then some exhortations from the scripture. I can't look up all the references, but I'll cite one for each one of these seven examples from scripture, and there are more. Number one, it strengthens earnest prayer. I'm hoping you pray. I'm believing we pray, but it strengthens earnest prayer. Ezra 8.23, Joel 2.12. But remember in Acts chapter 13, matter of fact, I'm going to invite you to turn there. Acts chapter 13, but Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. It says, as they ministered to the Lord. So here is the church at Antioch. Antioch had surpassed the church at Jerusalem as being the great church, the largest church, because it had Gentiles in it, and they were burdened for the other Gentiles. Here they are at Antioch, Paul's home church, by the way. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted, it says it again, and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So here is an example of the church is saying, God, we've been saved. We want those around us to be saved. We want you to do a work in our midst, and we're praying that you'll reach more and more people. And God says, okay, as they are fasting, he says, okay, separate unto me Barnabas and Paul. And you know what happened as a result of that? They went on their first missionary journey. And as a result of their first missionary journey, going towards Asia up and through there, and then later in their second, third journey, they went up into Europe, the gospel began to spread throughout the world. So as a result of their prayers and a result of their fasting, hundreds, thousands of people, and today multiplied millions of people have been saved. Because they said, God, hear our prayer. We want to reach more people. Number two, seeking God's guidance. We're talking about examples from Scripture. When seeking God's guidance, Judges 20, 26, Acts, again, 14, 23. Paul has established these churches. He can't stay there. He's an apostle. He's a church planner. He's an evangelist. He can't stay there. Barnabas is part of his team. So they said, we have to appoint elders or pastors to oversee the flock. They've been dotting, you know, Asia Minor with churches. And they, what does it say in that passage of Scripture? They fasted and prayed that God would bring to the top, that God would rise individuals to the surface who would be the pastors of these churches. They fasted and prayed, and then the Bible says, and then they recognized those individuals, and they anointed them to become the pastors and elders. So it's a result of seeking God's guidance. When you need God's guidance, you fast and pray. Number three, Deliverance and protection, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. And I'm simply mentioning them and drawing the story to your attention. Ezra, remember Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah built the walls, rebuilt the temple. After the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, God's releasing his people, Israel. But most of them didn't want to go back. They were going back to a, a city that was destroyed and had no walls, so they were unprotected. So they didn't want to go back. So Nehemiah builds the walls, but even before building the walls, which is incredible to me, they rebuilt the temple. And that was done under Ezra. And Ezra had told the king, our God is with this endeavor. And we don't need your soldiers. God will protect us. And it's kind of funny when you read the story. After he got away from the king, he was very scared. But he made a claim that God would protect him. And so the whole group, the whole, all the uh, refugees, all the expats that were going back to, to Israel got on their knees and they fasted and prayed and they said, oh God, we bragged about you protecting us. We denied the having in the army of the king. Now please protect us from the marauding bands around here. And they prayed and they fasted and they got protected all the way to Jerusalem and while they were in Jerusalem. Deliverance and protection. Number four, expressing our repentance. This is probably the most common example of fasting in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. Jonah chapter 3, a little short book called Jonah. You know the story. It's one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, after Jonah, he didn't want him to repent. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He hated them. They had done so much damage to Israel. He wanted God to destroy them. That's why he got in the boat and eventually got in the fish and went the opposite direction because he didn't want to preach repentance. God had the fish cough him up on the shore. He goes to Nineveh and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, God says. Now that's not what we would call a basic gospel message. You know, death, burial, resurrection. It's, it's not a basic gospel message, but it scared them. The Holy Spirit of God worked in that Old Testament scenario in such a way from the king to the plowboy. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they fasted and prayed. That was not a part of their regular practice. They fasted and prayed and said, oh God, spare us. Oh God, don't destroy it. His preaching was met with hearing ears. And they fasted and prayed, and God spared Nineveh for a hundred years because of that one incident. They expressed their repentance, and God looked down and said, all right, I've changed my mind. Based upon your behavior, your repentance, I've changed my mind. I won't destroy you as a city and as a people. Fasting and prayer expresses our repentance. Number five, humbling ourselves before God. First Kings 21, 27 through 29. The most wicked man probably in all of Israel's history, you know him by name and his wife particularly, Ahab and Jezebel. They're the personification of deviant, evil behavior. Ahab and Jezebel. But We'd hardly remember that after the influence of God's prophets and their preaching in their life, Ahab of all people repented. Of all people, the most wicked king Israel, Judah ever had repented. He repented and he humbled himself before God. And God says, because you have repented, I'm not going to do to you what I said I would do to you. I'll let you live, but I will eventually 
annihilate your family, and God did. As I preached about last Sunday night, Jehu, humbling ourselves before God, and this, number six, concern for the work of God. Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah was the cup bearer. He was part of the king's cabinet in Babylon. He tasted the wine to see if anybody poisoned it. Responsible job, and he was always with the king because the king always had wine or food and that kind of thing. So he, was, he had the ear of the king. And the Bible tells us in chapter 1 of Nehemiah that he had a sad countenance because he heard the report of the people that didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. And those that were there in Jerusalem were depressed and discouraged because there were no walls. They were very vulnerable. And Nehemiah, had a, he, after he heard that news, he began to fast and pray. And evidently, the king could recognize it. He said, what's the sad countenance you have? And Nehemiah says, O king, O king, live forever. But it's because of my people. They're in a very vulnerable place back here. It's because of my people. The king says, how can I help? God worked in a pagan king's heart because Nehemiah had been fasting and praying. And the king says, what's it going to take? What's it going to cost? I'll foot the bill. You go back, take people with you, rebuild the walls. I'll pay for it. Result of fasting and prayer. Concern for God's people. Concern for the work of God. We should be concerned for, the, for God's people in America. There are places in America like California, Nevada, and other places, they can't meet or they're getting fined $1,000 a day. We should be concerned. We should be concerned about the election. It's not what I'm preaching about, but there's a lot. We will all say probably the most important election of our lifetime. That's certainly something to pray about, something even to fast for. Oh, God, hear us, spare us, Lord. Last, number seven, overcoming temptation, seeking God's blessing. Overcoming temptation. Every person in this room has temptations. And every one of us should be seeking God's blessing. We see it in the Bible. People fast and pray to overcome temptation and to get God's blessing. I'll just simply mention the reference Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Jesus begins his public ministry. What does he do? He does what we call a supernatural fast. We wouldn't try this. He fasts for 40 days. He knows he's getting ready to launch his ministry, start the church, call his disciples. The souls of men, millions of souls of men depend upon this launch, we could say. So what does he do? He faces temptation from the devil while he's fasting. The devil comes to him three times and tempts him, tempts him. One of the temptations is food. But he's praying that he would overcome all of the devil's temptation. That was just an initial temptation, that he would overcome all of the devil's temptation and that God's blessing would be upon him. And that's the Son of God. That's Jesus Christ in the flesh, the Son of God in the flesh. And he's praying for blessing. He's praying for blessing and he's seeking God. How much more do we as mere humans? So there's plenty of examples in Scripture about fasting, as you can see. So let me give you some exhortations from Scripture. Without a clear spiritual purpose, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, without a clear spiritual purpose, it's not Christian fasting. It's just going hungry. It's just going hungry. 
Christian fasting isn't something we must muster up the strength in and of ourselves. Oh, God, help me to do this. I don't want to drive by any restaurants, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We don't muster up the strength to do it in our own strength, but from a heart that God has worked in and enables. Philippians 2.13, listen to this. It is God who works in you both to will, gives us the desire, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do you get that? We ask God, we, see, we have burdens, we say, God, give me the desire and then give me the ability that's what this verse is saying, to do your good pleasure, to do what's pleasing to you. That's what Paul is saying there. I have a statement. Fasting or any of the other spiritual disciplines, fasting or any of the other spiritual disciplines is not a demonstration of my discipline, but a declaration of my dependence upon God. You follow me? I'm not saying look at me. You can't go around saying, look at, look at me, how disciplined I am. I don't eat certain days of the week. It's not a demonstration of my discipline. It is really a declaration of how needy I am. I am depending upon God. I can't fix this situation. I can't help this person. God, I am dependent upon you, and I'm weak and needy, and I'm underscoring it by not eating, which makes me only more weak and more needy. Fasting or any of the other spiritual disciplines, whether it's reading our Bible or going to church or praying, they're not a demonstration of my discipline, but a declaration of my dependence upon God. Fasting is the handmaid of genuine prayer, fervent prayer. It's the handmaid of an intense plea to God when food would seem to be a distraction from the burden at hand, from the weightiness of a situation. Let's say your spouse or your child is in the hospital and in critical shape. Somebody so shows up and says, oh, pastor, I've got some filet mignon wrapped in bacon and some asparagus spears and, uh, you know, some cheesecake here for you. And my spouse, my wife, sorry, or my child is on the verge of hovering between life and death, I'm not going to be interested in food. I'm interested in the person in the hospital bed that's clinging to life. There are more important things than food, we say. And sometimes that's prayer. Sometimes that's fasting and prayer. We recognize God has made us eaters and drinkers to teach us about himself. We enjoy eating and drinking. And we recognize that those good gifts come from him. He supplies our daily bread. Matter of fact, we're to pray that way. Supply us our daily bread. He's made us eaters and drinkers so we would look to him. He made our world edible and drinkable so that we might better taste his goodness. When our mouths are dry and our stomachs are empty, we realize that food and drink satisfy temporarily. God satisfies eternally and completely, fully. 
Fasting reminds us that our God is himself a great feast. Our God is a great feast. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. I'll provide, he's saying. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God says, just come to me. I will satisfy you. I will fill you. I will meet your need. We recognize when we're fasting that there's something better than just food and drink. Something more satisfying than just what we can acquire. When we fast, the ache in our gut is a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life. The ache in our gut reminds us that he's the bread of life. Matter of fact, in Psalm 81 verse 10, it says, Open your mouth wide. When we empty our stomach, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God says, I want to fill it with something that's very, very satisfying. Christian fasting is not mainly about what we're going without. Don't miss it. It's what we want more of. It's not what we're going without. It's what we want more of. We're saying, God, I want more of you. I want more of your blessing in my life. There are people and situations in my life and people that I know that I can't change, I can't fix, I can't control. But God, you can. And I offer up my prayers with sincerity. I demonstrate it with my denial and showing and underscoring my own weakness. That's what we're saying. Not that I'm going without, but I need more of God. Quickly, instructions about fasting. Let me give you just a couple of closing thoughts here about fasting. Number one, I would say start small. Maybe fast one meal a day, one day a week for a month. And then up it. Two meals a day, one day a week for a month. And then go a whole day without eating. Go a whole day without eating. Matter of fact, if you eat supper, let's say you eat supper on Tuesday night, obviously, hopefully you're not getting up and having a midnight snack, but you eat supper, you go through the whole night, all the next day, that would be a 24-hour fast if you went to supper the next night. But let's say you went through Wednesday night and ate breakfast on Thursday. That's a 36-hour fast. Half of the time you're sleeping. You're not thinking about food, probably. Okay? A 36-hour fast is very, very doable. Start small. Number two, plan what you will do instead of eating. Obviously, if it's a spiritual fast, it has a purpose. Fasting is more than self-deprivation. Fasting, Christian fasting has a purpose. Not weight loss necessarily. You can fast for weight loss, but spiritual fasting, Christian fasting is more than self-deprivation. It is a spiritual pursuit of God. So when you're not eating, read your Bible. When you're not eating, pray. That's the whole idea. Plan what you will do. Number three, consider how it will affect others. Those of us who are married, those of us who have children, you know, if, if dad doesn't show up for 
breakfast, lunch, or supper, they're going to say, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong with saying, I plan on fasting Thursday. And it's just to your immediate family because that's who it's going to be affected. Your wife might say, well, what's wrong with my cooking? He doesn't want to come to my lunch anymore. Explain. I got some things that I'm going to fast over and pray over. And so instead of sitting at the table or maybe we'll sit at the table and pray together and then I'll depart and pray some more. Consider how it will affect others. Number four and last, don't think of fasting as earning God's favor. Be careful here. Don't think of fasting as earning God's favor. That's legalism. Basically, legalism is is saying, is thinking, we do something for God, and God does something for us. I read my Bible every day, so God's got to bless me. I fast, God's got to really bless me. That's legalism. That's the idea that I do penance, God gives me salvation. I grew up with that. I grew up in a religious system that taught you do these things and then God does some things for you. You don't spend long in purgatory. That's legalism. We believe in grace. Everything that we got from God came by his grace through faith. He saves us by grace. He he blesses us because of grace. Don't think you're doing something for God expecting to get something back. We fast in this life because we believe in the life to come. We fast in this life because we believe in the life to come. We don't have to get it all here and now because we have a promise that we will have it all in the coming age. We can never have it all now. We're going to have it all in the coming age. We fast from what we can see and taste because we have tasted and seen the goodness of the invisible and infinite God and are desperately hungry for more of him. We've tasted and we've seen the invisible, infinite God and we say, I've got to have some more. I've got to have more of that. I've got to have more of God. That's why we fast. Let's pray. Father, for some people, maybe this is the first time they've ever been challenged, Lord, about fasting. And we know you don't demand it of us, but you do expect it of us. And Lord, we know that casual Christianity can so infect us. Little demands, little expectations. We don't want to be those kinds of Christians. We want to practice the Christian disciplines. Every person in this room and probably every person listening to my voice via recording has got burdens, situations that are way beyond their ability to fix and solve. And so we offer up our prayers and with earnest at times we will fast and say, oh God, work. So help us to think about this and to appropriate it into our life, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.